Welcome to The Lion, the Witch, and the Evangelicals, the fifth season of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. I am Crispin Mayfield, and I'm a therapist. I'm D.L. Mayfield, and I'm a writer and neighbor. And we discuss evangelical artifacts from the 80s and 90s. This season, we're tackling everybody's favorite kids series, The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. So join us as we return to childhood and rediscover what's special about this series as we keep our eye out for themes of dominant theology. Welcome back to the Prophetic Imagination Station, The Lion, the Witch, and the Evangelicals. Today we are talking with Paul Pastor, who is probably the person that I know oldest on this podcast. That you know oldest? I don't know how to say that that, right, that that I've known known for the longest. There we go. I, when I was in high school... Um, I went to check out Multnomah, okay. um, and so I had a preview weekend, and Paul was my like dorm buddy. Whoa, okay, so Multnomah is Multnomah Bible College, which is where you and I went. It's not Multnomah University, and uh, yeah, it's a Bible college here in Portland, Oregon. Me and Paul talk about it a little bit in the interview, but anything you want to say about Multnomah, Chris Spen? Uh, there's not a lot I want to say right. about Multnomah. Yeah. <laughs> that is a whole topic. I know, I just sprung that on you. Right. I mean, you guys kind of, Paul, I mean, Paul talks about it in the interview that it is a Bible college. It's like people that want to go to study the Bible to be in ministry, which creates a very specific sort of atmosphere. Mm-hmm. I will say that, which was where we met. I wanted to be a youth pastor. You wanted to be a missionary. Mm-hmm. And neither of us ended up doing those things. No. And I wrote a book about how I failed miserably at it. Um, yeah. So Paul is a really interesting person. He's a really great writer. He's, um, done a lot of things. You can check out his website. We'll talk about that. I, uh, <laughs> I mean, there's multiple reasons I wanted to interview Paul for this podcast. One is because he knows a lot about Lewis, but also he knows a lot about George McDonald, who we talk about in this interview, who interviewed Lewis. I mean, interviewed, influenced Lewis. And uh, also Paul, <laughs> So at Multnomah, there's this really beloved professor who's, who turned his house into basically like a, shri- a shrine to all things Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, it's a Narnian frat house. Yes, uh, <laughs> called Aslan's How, which was very much a thing when I was going to Multnomah and you were too, right? Mm-hmm. And did you ever go tour Aslan's How? I feel like I did once. I feel like I toured the girls one. There was like a girls one. I forget what it was called. The Inklings? Yeah, but it wasn't as like elaborately done. But we like knew people who lived at Aslan's house. And it was sort of like, it wasn't like they were cool people, but they were like kind of elites at Multnomah, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, to live in Aslan's house. Right. And so certain level of status. I wanted Paul to talk about (laughs) that a little bit. I mean, if people don't believe us when we say evangelicals are really into narnia it's like we we aren't even scratching the surface of how into it they are so i just thought it was funny uh just that paul ended up living there and he talks about that a little bit in the beginning of the interview Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it was a really great i mean paul is really smart really knows a lot about lewis and mcdonald so it's really great to talk to him but also this little tidbit of our history together was really fun right also people have been asking us if we'd if we'd read the book planet narnia which is about this theory that each of the narnian books like corresponds to a medieval view of one of the planets 
which I had not. But Paul brings it up. So mm-hmm. at least somebody on this podcast <laughs> knows about that. I thought that was really interesting. Right, like, yeah. So interesting. Also, we're going to share it on the socials. But in light of us talking about the silver chair in this episode, uh, my sister drew a picture of me as Puddle Glum. And it's amazing. And I've never felt more seen. Because Wait, I am Puddle Glum. So explain to me, what is all the hype about Puddle Glum? He is just so melancholy. It's incredible. Mm. He's like a very dour figure. And I think I mentioned this before, but in the BBC adaptation, um, he's played by this actor. I should know the name, but one of the people who was Doctor Who way back in the day played oh. Puddle Glum, the Marsh Wiggle, And he was just so good. Even as a kid, I was like this this character is amazing it is so funny he's so he's, he's such an eeyore character but in like a you know fancy british way it was very funny that's so great yeah speaking of bbc we are going to do a roundup later on of reviewing the rest of the bbc what videos we are i put it on the schedule <laughs> put it on the schedule yeah I didn't read the whole schedule. We can't just watch The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The boring one. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So I figure we'll just we'll just watch some of those, give some thoughts on it, and maybe you can talk more about Puddle Glum. But that is a bit there that we should have saved for then. Sorry. Okay, wait. Before we go into this interview, big news. This is dropping on Monday. On Wednesday, December 16th, we are doing like... A live Zoom chat, hangout, bring your sparkling water, where we're just going to be chatting with Matt Michelados uh, about all things Narnia. But it's available to anybody who is a patron of the Prophetic Imagination Station, which is, again, $1.50 a month. And you can just hop on a Zoom call with us and hang out. And I mean, I want everybody to chat. I think... We'll be asking him a bunch of nerdy things. I definitely want to talk about the Enneagram and Narnia. Is there anything you want to talk about? I don't know, but I just know that Matt wanted to like talk more about uh, uh, Eustace being a dragon. Okay, jeez. <laughs> okay, we'll do that. a little therapizing, but then like we'll also have fun. Yes. Okay. Well, it's going to be the Prophetic Imagination Station Patreon Christmas party. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm bringing my sparkling water. What time is it at again? It is at 6 p.m. Pacific, which is 9 p.m. Eastern and 8 p.m. Central. So just sign up real quick for our Patreon. You'll get the Zoom link. And uh, I think it'll be fun. Okay. Mm-hmm. Before we jump in, Dear Wormwood, you oh, ready? I'm ready. Okay. Dear Wormwood, the humans live in a time, but our enemy destines them to eternity. He therefore wants them to attend chiefly to two things, to eternity itself and to that point of time which they call the present. For the present is the point at which time touches eternity. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Or, gotta okay. decide which one yeah, of these is okay. fake. It sounds pretty real. My dear Wormwood, it is dangerous to allow the patient to mull over the nature of their ultimate fate. In my experience, the best method to doling this emotion is through distraction. Refocus questions by making your patient think about mundane things like lunch. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. I don't know. That seems more real. Are they both real? Nope. One's fake. They're both fake. No. The first one is real and the second one is fake. I totally tricked you for the first time in this whole series. 
I know it was, I was, I love thinking about lunch. That is like, I love it. Next time you bring up lunch, I'm just going to be like, that is Satan. That's like what Satan does. Right. This makes you think about lunch and not eternity. So there we go. And not eternity. I'm hungry right now. Before we jump into this interview, um, I just wanted to, Paul writes some really interesting books um, that are very like theological, but also kind of poetic. And um, so he's written The Face of the Deep, which is about the Holy Spirit. And then he wrote a couple of volumes called The Listening Day. So The Listening Day, volume one and two. Yeah, which are kind of like devotionals, but they're really great. They're mm-hmm. they're pretty weird, which is why I like them so much. Right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely out there. And then he is publishing a collection of poetry this next year as well. Yeah. So, yeah, it just like gives you kind of a good, I feel like that gives you a good picture of kind of who he is. Uh, you know, lived in Aslan's Howe, yep. writes poetry. Now he lives like in the woods next to a waterfall. It's a, he's a, he's a lovely guy. So let's get to that interview with Paul Pastor. Okay, well, I'm extremely excited because I get to talk to somebody I actually know in real life, although we are separated thanks to COVID-19. Actually, I, I wanted to say a swear word at at the <laughs> virus, but I'm not going to, just in case kids are listening uh, to this series about Narnia. But I'm so excited. I get to t- talk to Paul Pastor. It's somebody I actually went to Bible college with many moons ago. How many years ago was that, Paul? Many moons. Gosh, we graduated in 08. Is that right? Yeah. 12 years. So that means it was 16 when we were freshmen together. Well, I actually wasn't a freshman there. So you were, you were, you were one of like the tried and true. Yeah. Crispin was a freshman there. Yeah. So, so Paul, we have quite the history and then both of us, after we graduated, ended up getting into publishing and writing. I think you were probably always on that trajectory. But mm-hmm. now you're somebody that has so many fingers and so many different different <laughs> editing and writing mm-hmm. projects. Why don't you just kind of introduce people to who you are? Yeah, you bet. I'd love to. Well, my day job right now is as uh, an editor for Waterbrook and Multnomah. Those are a couple of imprints that are uh, associated with Penguin Random House. So during the day, I'm running around like a happy chicken with his head cut off, making books, acquiring books, editing books, championing them uh, inside our kind of ecosystem of the largest publisher of books in the world and learning, just learning so much about that process, trying to be a good editor for our authors and um, really just walking through the weird world of bookmaking with my eyes wide open, um, just simultaneously in shock that I get to do this and um, trying to keep on top of my inbox. So that's the day job. And then uh, I've published a few books on my own. Uh, Back in 2016, we came out with uh, The Face of the Deep, which is this really genre-bending work of, I don't know, poetic theology, maybe is what I'd call it, uh, Mm -hmm. about the Holy Spirit. It's 14 creative nonfiction essays that are a flawed yet beautiful view from one man of what it feels like to try and live into uh, these historic Christian doctrines related to the Holy Spirit while 
just being me. So that book was critically very well received, but it never quite connected with the world. So it's being re-released by the publisher actually uh, August 1st, 2020. It's got a new cover, a uh, beautifully produced new audiobook read by me with original music. Um, there's a bunch of stuff coming out related to the face of the deep that folks can look for in August. Then I have a devotional series in multiple parts called The Listening Day as well. And I describe that as sort of poetic uh, Lectio Divina um, on the page. It's dialogical and maybe a little bit odd, but uh, it was the result of an invitation from a publisher to sort of work with this concept of dialogical prayer. So that's what that is. And then finally, very briefly, uh, my first collection of poetry has just been uh, offered a contract that I'm very excited about. I'll make a formal announcement in, in coming weeks on that. But in 2020, uh, 2021, we will be um, releasing a collection of poetry from me with original art from uh, a publisher here in Oregon. Awesome. Yeah, you are you are a very busy guy. And even when we were in college together, you were somebody who was very interested in learning, right? You're someone who's very interested in studying. And and I also love that you yourself said, you know, you're a little bit odd and you have a poetic <laughs> nature to you and you kind of mix all this together. And there's a few reasons why I really wanted to talk to you for this series. One of them is your delightful oddness, which we're going to talk about today because mm. C.S. Lewis was a bit odd and he really loved a certain author who was also very odd and mm. did a lot of this narrative theology and all that stuff that, that you're so good at too. But the first reason I reached out to you is because when we were at Bible college, you lived somewhere that was all about Narnia. And I want yes. to talk about that. Why don't you tell us about where you lived, what it was like, and then we'll backtrack and talk about your relationship to the books. Is that okay? Absolutely. Aslan's Howe. Aslan's Howe was a house, probably the closest thing to a frat house that Multnomah, uh, that Multnomah had. An absolutely beautiful place, but off the map odd, Danielle, as you remember. <laughs> off the map. Uh, Dr. Gary Friesen, who was just a beloved professor, a really important mentor for me, and a friend. Like, we still routinely correspond, and I look to him for wisdom on so many points of, of life and, and what it means to be a person of faith in a really difficult world. Um, but Gary founded, I, I forget, early 2000s, uh, maybe even before late 90s, I don't know the exact chronology, uh, a house to be a community of single men near the campus walking distance there. Um, Gary himself was well, is a lifelong single man and uh, just founded this house, but his thing is Lewis. He loves Lewis. And so I don't know exactly how it started, but gradually the house grew to encompass his personal collection of Lewis books, ephemera. And then at some point the scales tipped and it became a combination uh, piece of bizarre Portland performance art and a Narnia museum with monthly tours of people walking through this college house. Uh, every room was themed after a particular book from the series or a, or a scene. Uh, by the time he was done, even the crawl spaces were things like Mr. Tumnus's cave and the beaver's den, complete with, uh, complete with flickering fake fires and Mrs. Beaver's stove from Father Christmas. 
So it, it was pretty incredible. Um, just to paint the picture, uh, at one point I found myself um, hauling a antique wardrobe up to the second story window along with three or four other guys. This massive piece of furniture, which he had paid probably seven, several hundred dollars for. Uh, and then we promptly cut a hole through the wall into this sort of adjoining closet, cut a hole in the back of this wardrobe, and then screwed it in front of the hole so that for the rest of my time there to get to my dresser drawers in the closet, I had to push literally through a set of fur coats in a wardrobe <laughs> to get to a scene, a very Narnian scene in my closet, complete with fake snow and Mr. Tumnus's scarf uh, to get my clothing. And this was the surreal reality that that we all lived in and laughed about. I mean, it's, it's tongue in cheek, but also very passionate, um, but definitely a unique experience to be there as one of the men of the how with Dr. Gary Friesen. Oh my gosh. So it's, it's amazing to even hear you talk about it. I think I went on one of those tours, uh, but that was the only time I ever really went inside the how. And so are you saying your room was like the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe room? My room was themed as Prince Caspian, but it was the only place this wardrobe would fit. And so being wow. a pragmatist, that's where the giant wardrobe went. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I wish I wish there was some like uh Tumblr or something account where we could see photos of this because sadly Aslan's how is no more. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, you know, Gary has moved to um, serve in Rwanda. He's doing just incredible work in Rwanda and uh, he sold off everything. It was, it was amazing. I mean, this is a collection that this man had spent a couple decades building and was really dear to his heart. And without skipping a beat, he sold it to help um, fund education for, uh, for pastors and community leaders in Rwanda. So there was a stone lion that sat at the entrance to the how that now sits in my driveway overlooking uh, cars that visit our home. So there's little pieces of that legacy that live on. And uh, I may be able to track down some online pictures. I think they exist somewhere out okay. in probably on MySpace or something. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. <laughs> That'd be we awesome. Can we can put that with our thing. But to me, it really is an interesting encapsulation of sort of the oddness that can come with evangelicals loving Lewis. And that's not a derogatory thing, but it's also okay to say it's a, it can be a little weird. And, um, yep. you know, you kind of live into that. So Gary, Dr. Friesen was a professor at Multnomah. I definitely mm -hmm. took some of his classes. Like you said, he was beloved. Multnomah is a university here in Portland, Oregon, um, which I would, I would call it an evangelical university. I'm not sure if, do, do you agree? I don't know. Yeah, like, I don't know exactly. what that term means anymore. I, I think evangelical I mean. is up for grabs. It's definitely it's <laughs> its roots were in the historic Bible college movement, which yeah. um, I mean the the shaping cultural forces of that movement are largely gone now. So I think universities like Multnomah are trying to understand who they are in our new religious reality and cultural reality. Um, but especially when we were there, yeah, it was it was a Bible it was a Bible school. You went there because yeah. you wanted to be a pastor or uh, you had some sort of desire to uh, make a religious difference, a faith difference um, with yeah. your life. Yeah. And I mean, I know that our school is even, you know, a part of like Randall Balmer talking about evangelical institutions and, and all that stuff. So yeah, I, I mean, our school was mostly white when we attended there. Things have changed even in, you know, the 12 years since we've, we've graduated, but it is a pretty good hallmark of, uh, 
evangelicalism. I remember even like having friends. I did not know that Wheaton was like a school. Um, and so when I finally met some people who went to Wheaton, they were like horrified that I'd never heard of the Yale or like the Harvard <laughs> of Christian schools or whatever oh. the Wheaton people got. But like Multnomah is not Wheaton, right? Multnomah is definitely coming from a more, like you said, old school Bible college mm. thing. So all that to say, you have some real cred when it comes to somebody who can talk about C.S. Lewis. But you were telling me just before we started recording that you actually read the Chronicles of Narnia books uh, before you were a Christian. Do you want to talk a little mm. bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I didn't read the series in their entirety, but my first introduction did come before my family had come to any sort of faith. Uh, I remember that old box set, uh, the late 70s or early 80s box set. You can probably see the covers if you've you've like encountered them in the library. They're real bubbly, cartoony, uh, sort of sci-fi-esque covers for that series. I can still see them in my mind's eye where I'm, you know, six or seven and uh, encountering them. And actually, the first time that I encountered Narnia stuff. Uh, I hated it. My mother was reading me The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and there was something about it that that terrified me at like an existential level. Uh, and I wasn't that sensitive of a child. Like my favorite film was The Neverending Story, watched on repeat for like the first six years of my life. And so that probably explains so much if you know, you know me. But uh, there's something about, I think, the the concept of Narnia, like this world within our world that just got under my skin a little bit in that point before I was at all introduced to religious or Christian language or thinking. Um, and I didn't like it. I, I made her stop reading the series. So later on, later in childhood, after you know my family had come to faith, I did re-encounter it. And some of those same things that had disturbed me before helped give the groundwork for, I think, a really a really deep magnetism to that story. Um, mm. Especially as a young kid, like uh, a prepubescent kid getting into this stuff and being a deep feeler and um, interested in, in sort of the magic and the story and all that, this concept that there was a place you could go to that was somehow inside the world and bigger than this world that we encounter um, uh, spoke to me. And I think that's part of the appeal. I think, uh, for a lot of people of faith who love the series, um, it's certainly not unique to Narnia, but what Lewis, Lewis really does is Christianizes it in a way that's fable-esque so that your, the story that you believe in your church time mind, uh, for example, uh, is ported over into the imagination of your reading time mind. And that, that sense of mystery and sacrament, um, very Anglican as Lewis was, mm -hmm. uh, is, is appealing, I think, to many, many Christians. Yeah. And I, I really have been surprised as I've been trying to dig into these books, why they're so popular to uh, evangelicals and why evangelicals was, some, was the question I started with. And now I think I'm asking some different questions, which is what are these things that drove Lewis to write? What were his influences? And maybe a little bit secondary is why people respond to it the way they do. Um, including myself. I, I don't think, I don't know. I just want to sit a little bit with that sense of there's more to the world than what we can see, you know, and, uh, how do we keep pursuing that feeling? Um, and as people of faith, that's, those are questions we should be asking, but I've become really interested in what, 
motivated C.S. Lewis, what influenced him. Mm. And the thing that comes up again and again in these biographies I've been reading and talking to academics is, you know, his favorite author, was <laughs> someone named George MacDonald. Mm. And, and most people who are not Christians in particular don't know what to do with George MacDonald. And so they just say, Lewis was obsessed with this guy. Mm. One of his books in particular, Lewis was just obsessed with, and it's mm. just like all about fairies, and and it's just weird, you know. And it's just well, weird, yes. weird books about fairies that are maybe also about God. Um, so, yes, that's a good way to say it. So, so that's uh, so I, that's kind of what I want to talk to you a little bit about is George MacDonald, and mm. since he was so important to Lewis, I think it's it's important that we talk about him, especially because of the types of books that George MacDonald wrote. So, Paul, mm. for the listeners, can you just quickly sum up who George MacDonald was. Absolutely. George MacDonald was a Victorian writer, mostly of fairy uh, and children's stories. That's what he was best known for. Uh, but he was an absolutely prolific writer of poetry, uh, of sermons. Um, he was a Christian who um, came from a very like hardline uh, Calvinist background in Scotland. Um, and, and all of this it predates Lewis by a couple generations, just so you know. So Lewis is sort of mid-century post-war um, England. This is Victorian era Scotland, right? Um, but MacDonald was really a pariah in many Christian circles because of his embrace of um, historically Christian but theologically ostracized doctrines, such as um, what, what was interpreted as universalism. Mm-hmm. Um at the time. So what McDonald did throughout his life, which was marked by tragedy, marked by um, commercial failure, marked by sort of just opportunity after opportunity that sort of connected and flubbed really right up until the end of his life where he got a little bit of recognition. What he did was he wrote prolifically about, uh, I would say, the life of the the heart imagination uh, by means mostly of images. And uh, let me unpack that a little bit. So McDonald is a bad writer. And in many ways, Lewis, though he's clear when it comes to fiction, in many ways, Lewis is a bad writer. The Narnia series is a pastiche. Tolkien, of course, who's part of his writer's circle, critiqued it from the beginning for its inconsistencies, for its um, preachiness, for its uh, obvious um, desire to persuade and proselytize, not just uh, not just create a world and inhabit that world. So artistically speaking, um, you know, Lewis has massive flaws and McDonald's does as well. McDonald's prose suffers from all of the Victorian era problems. And yet, and yet there is a power to what McDonald's did that was so profound that C.S. Lewis, before he was a Christian, while he was still an atheist, said that McDonald's work baptized his imagination he picked, he picked up a copy of Fantasties, which is this early Victorian fairy story. It's sort of this hallucinogenic journey into like one man's brain. Um, he picked it up at a train station, Lewis did. And by the time he finished reading it, he said that he felt he had crossed a great frontier. And what happened there was, from my perspective, McDonald's images, they get under your skin. The way he writes, nah. Seriously, uh, I've actually toyed around with um, updating and editing and actually making readable uh, Lilith, one of one of his monumental works. Um, that's a project that lives on my Google Drive and will probably never see the light of day. But I've I've rewritten nearly half of Lilith and 
uh, the, the impulse there, the goal there is simply to let the images really speak for themselves in a way that we're like, the Victorian language falls away so that they can get at you. But there's just something about what he does, the way that birds become humans, the way that mirrors become doors, the way that uh, everything you see has this different reality that, um, you know, a piano can become a rose bush. And uh, there's a link there. There's a logic there that matters. It's not arbitrary. There's a reason that the piano is a rose bush. They're the same thing viewed from different angles to McDonald's. And so what that did for Lewis, especially since Lewis was this medievalist Oxford scholar who studied deeply uh, not just me medieval thoughts, but medieval modes of thought, medieval cosmologies, the way that medieval people thought and philosophized about the world. Right. This spoke deeply to Lewis's interests there and uh, was key to helping him cross cross that frontier into eventually Christian faith. Yeah. And the thing I love about, you know, Lewis being connected to McDonald is the sense that like, again, going, going against a little bit of that modern modernism, literalism, all that stuff that was in fashion, George McDonald was deeply not in fashion. Right. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And even Lewis's Narnia books not being in fashion with his writer's group. I think it all is kind of connected and still yeah. you're like, I'm drawn to this. I'm drawn to stories being told in this way. I think yeah. people listening to this, um, you know, if they've heard of George MacDonald, they would probably have heard of like the princess and the goblin, the princess yeah. and Curdie. You know, he definitely has some children's stories that are extremely popular. But the the stuff that really impacted Lewis was the, was the weirder stuff as you were talking yeah. about. And I remember being a kid, I actually loved... George MacDonald way more than I love C.S. Lewis. And it was only one book I had, which was The Light Princess. And it had the story of The Light Princess and other other stories. But I'm a little bit of probably what Lewis would call like a prig or something, because I just thought they were amazing morality tales, like dressed up in fantastical mm -hmm. um, characters. So I'm not sure that's a correct assessment, but I well, love morals. I love a good morality tale. So Mac I love McDonald's those. made a library, right? So yeah. McDonald, McDonald has morality tales and he has yeah. really preachy, lame stuff. And he has books that are undigestible. They're just they're just undigestible. But the moments, <laughs> the moments he's at his best, nobody else does it like he does. Nobody. Um, and and it mean, opens your imagination in a really yeah. fascinating way. And I still remember the images from the light princess and all that yes. stuff. It was, oh my gosh. I think about some of his stories all the time, much more than like the brothers Grimm or anything. Those stories impacted my childhood. So I, I wanted to talk a little bit about how McDonald influenced Lewis as far as looking at images, looking at the spiritual, right? In ways that are a little unconventional, maybe. And talk about uh, what you just told me is your favorite uh, Narnia book, which <laughs> is The Silver Chair. Now, can the you, you know, you're somebody whose heart is a little bit close to McDonald, right? So tell mm -hmm. me why you like The Silver Chair. Best. Yeah, The Silver Chair is the dark, crazy child of the Narnia series, at least from my perspective. Um, and for all of my, for all of my, uh, I don't know what to say here. I think a lot of people picture me as a, just this kind of happy dude who like skips around the woods, but actually like 
I'm pretty moody. I'm pretty broody. My interior is, is dark and chewy. Um, I don't, I don't know what to say here other than the sober chair speaks to me at this existential level. Cause it's about, it's about madness and it's about mental health and it's about, um, the strange subterranean world that you have to enter to find out the way things really are. And I think there's something deeply soulish and human about that, that I, I personally appreciate. It is dark. It has my favorite character in the Narnia series, Puddleglum, the Marsh Wiggle, who is well known for being uh, an aggressively pessimistic character, yet with um, optimism on his inside. And uh, so it's just, it's a colorful, it's a good story. Uh, but I also wanted to bring up, um, I'm not sure if your listeners are going to be familiar with Michael Ward, who's an Oxford scholar, perhaps 15 or so years ago. I'm sorry, I don't have the exact uh, numbers here. Uh, but Planet Narnia was this uh, academic style work that Michael did that that basically drew links between each uh, book in the Narnia series, of which there are seven, which he said is not a coincidental number. And he linked them to sort of the medieval conception of various planets ruling various types of, of human life. Uh, and this is sort of from that zone of um, pre-enlightenment thinking where there are all these correspondences present in the world and it's not accidental what happens if you make a ring of gold versus a ring of silver in the medieval mind is actually really meaningful because gold is uh, the the color is the the metal of the sun it's related to rulership it's it, you know it's this deeply symbolic uh system of philosophy and thought that is based on concepts of correspondences so lewis was profoundly familiar with this and arguably pretty enamored of this and entranced with this. And of course, many of his companions of the day, including Charles Williams, another member of the Inklings Writers Group, were very involved in, um, let's just say, areas of study that many evangelicals would be extremely disturbed by mm -hmm, mm -hmm. related to these correspondences. So the silver chair, in Michael's estimation, corresponds to Luna, the moon. Uh, and this is uh, visible in sort of the madness that is centered in the story. Because um, the moon, of course, the, the idea of a lunatic uh, comes from the idea of the moon. And so Lewis's inspiration, arguably, in, in Michael's view, which he substantiates fairly well, is that this is the book that is about madness. It's dealing with madness. Uh, and so we see here uh, a beautiful metaphor for grief. Uh, Prince Rillian in the story is dealing with the loss of his mother and his, uh, he ends up being enslaved to the very force that took his mother's life and serving that force. Uh, and, it's, and it's really a deliverance story from that point on that encompasses both agencies from outside and inside that prince, right? It's, it's he who really knows the truth about himself, but only at these few brief moments where the silver chair, silver of course is the metal ruled by the moon in the medieval conception, when the silver chair is riven and that power of, of madness or lunacy is broken, that he's able to see things as they really are. So Lewis is dealing with these deep themes of darkness and deception and uh, even depression in ways that speak to me personally uh, and I think form arguably the best story out of the entire arc of that series. Oh my gosh. I'm like, my mind is blown, <laughs> especially about the, the Luda stuff. Like this is wild. Now I, I have a, a few questions that come up when I hear you talking about that. Of course you mentioned 
that, you know, some of this medieval stuff, you know, connecting to the planets and the moon and, and all that, you know, are, are things that good little evangelicals like me are like, oh, dear. Oh, that sounds like astrology or, you know, something like that, <laughs> that we are, we are taught to discredit. And as you were talking, even in, in thinking about Lewis, his community, his friends, the types of history and people he studied and loved, you know, it just reminds me that one uh, blind spot, I think, in my own education as a white American evangelical is that we, you know, we read uh, the New Testament and then we um, kind of skip straight to Billy Graham. <laughs> and that's kind of like <laughs> our conception of, of what Christianity looks like. And so Lewis, in some ways, has fit into my idea that this is all just modern Christian interpretation of events, you know, but it's not true at all. And you're helping me unpack that and saying it's really worthwhile to dig into these richer histories and stories of people who've been influenced by so many things. And I think it's amazing that C.S. Lewis took that and made it into this book. Now, here's the other thing I want to say. I find it really interesting that there's only been four Narnia movies made for a, you know a modern Western audience mm. of the Chronicles of Narnia books, and the Silver Chair is left out. Yeah, why do you think that is? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I just saw it today, though. I'm a little late to the game. It sounds like Netflix. Are they bringing out a new series? That's yeah. That's been a rumor for a while. So it'll yeah. be really interesting to see what happens because even the BBC did do an adaptation of the Silver Chair, which I I watched a ton when I was a kid. And man, yeah. Puddle Puddle Glum is the best. You were correct about that. <laughs> but even the BBC did not do the Magician's Nephew or the Last Battle. Yeah, you know, these are true. like these are like untouchable stories that nobody can figure out yeah. how to make. But the ones you know, the most recent ones, starting in I think it was like two thousand or something, you know, these new adaptations came out, you know, they're the ones that are really centered on, you know, some battle scenes and yeah. Prince Caspian and the Voyage of the Dawn Treader and the Land of the Witch in the Wardrobe. Yeah. But why not the Silver Chair? That's a great question. I, I, I can't really speculate on it other than it's dark and scary. It doesn't necessarily make you feel that good. Like at the end of the story, the best thing that's happened is that things are basically brought back to stasis, right? It starts in this orderly place. It descends literally and figuratively into the underworld. Um, it stays there as a narrative until the very end when it literally pops up out of the ground in Narnia and everyone's like, oh, the prince is back. Great. Well, what's the what's the overarching big picture there? Um, Aslan, you know, of course, the conception of, of Christ in those stories is largely absent. He's He hardly shows up at all. Uh, the instructions that he gives for the party who are seeking this lost prince are very vague. They're prone to misinterpretation. And so there's these questions even about the character of the, the person who is sending um, these characters in that's, that's very different. And so there are many points of the story that are simply dark. And I don't think that... Uh, evangelicals have embraced the rich and historic Christian understanding of holy darkness in mm. any sort of meaningful way. Um, and, and that concept, you know, everything dark equates to something evil. That's, that's baloney. That's, that's complete 
It's complete emptiness from my perspective. It's inhuman to begin with, and it's anti-Christian. That's, that's not right. how that's not how the historic church has understood it. So you can't get there though if you have been completely shaped by the Enlightenment. And that's why Lewis and MacDonald, both of whom were absolutely at a soul and mind level shaped by pre-Enlightenment thinkers. MacDonald, in the case of many of the European mystics, including Jacob Bohm, and then uh, Lewis, of course, with the medievalists, the Neoplatonists, who are seeing these correspondences and this very rich and um, God-haunted, frankly, but pre-scientific, as we think of science, view of the world. You know, evangelicals have become materialists, in my view. We just believe in what we can see and taste and touch and handle with mm -hmm. sort of this um, sublimated or um, superlimated uh, concept of heaven just thrown up there for when we die. And that's not that's not Christianity, and it's really not a very human way of looking at the world. So the silver chair for me reminds me of um, of a more human way to be in in my own mind and my own body and in relating to the holy darkness and the unholy darkness because they're both present they're both there whoa um, so, so you're holy darkness in the world you're saying this sort of fits into a dark night of the soul narrative i think it could i think the dark night of the soul is a very this is a rabbit trail let's go down it okay. uh, as far as you want but okay holy darkness from my perspective um the dark night of the soul is an initiatory moment for a soul. That's how John of the Cross wrote about it, right? So it's it's not something that you live in permanently. The, the riches there are largely riches of suffering and absence. He talks about as if uh, passing through the dark night of the soul is like passing through a fire that doesn't even light you. It's a dark fire. So all it does is burn. It just purges you um, of, of certain things. So John of the Cross, as a mystic, uh, Carmelite Spanish mystic, um, it, you know, medieval, of course, he's writing about that as this initiatory moment. When I speak of holy darkness, I'm speaking about um, aspects of soul, of human soul, that hold riches that are rich because they dwell in uh, some, some level of obscurity or shadow. Um, and that is present in God himself. In him is no darkness at all, the Bible says. But it also says that he dwells in deep darkness, mm -hmm. that God dwells in deep darkness. And so that this concept of, um, uh, let's use the images of the silver chair. There's this entire underground world of good and beautiful things. These small gnome-like creatures who mine and eat living gems from deep under the surface of the earth. It's this entire ecosystem of unseen but good and wonderful things that are just living down there. That is placed into bondage by the unholy darkness of uh, essentially this green witch who descends there and takes this good, these good dark things captive by means of um, secret bondage, right? Uh, power structures that enslave them. And... Um, yeah, we're, we're getting so far off track here that I don't know quite how to bring it back. But that imagery speaks to me because there are parts of ourselves that are and should remain secret in the most holy way. And that's Christ haunted to have that sense of inner darkness, right? Just like night. Night is not evil. It's just night. Day is not good because it's bright and night is not evil because it's dark. 
uh, it's what happens in those in those periods that consecrate or desecrate them. Um, and that's what I think can help be reclaimed by stories like the silver chair that give more nuance to what's happening, uh, metaphorically speaking, underground. Oh, my gosh. So I just love all of this. And this is just what keeps happening to me as I talk to people like yourself about these books. I'm just blown away at the attention um, that Lewis has put into these books and how there is richness there. And I think it's okay for me to still say I'm uncomfortable with how um, wider culture has, you know, resonated with these books. Um, you know, my main thing is that they these books are seen as safe and appropriate for little Christian kids who have very bounded sets of what's okay and what's not okay. You know, and as I'm a parent myself and trying to navigate, is that how I want to raise my kids with here's the safe books, here's the unsafe books? You know, I was like, no, I don't. How do we have these very deep, holy conversations with ourselves and with our families, with our neighbors at all times. So I'm loving this. I'm loving this. I I think it's given me such a greater appreciation knowing that, you know, I guess in my mind, I've just, I've really bemoaned the fact like that when I went to Multnomah, I did not read women. They were not really Mm. on the syllabus. It was mostly (laughs) white men, mostly of a very particular Christian denomination, right? Mm -hmm. I did not question that. Now I would because you get older and I've been changed by people who are really different from me. So I would I would grieve the the syllabuses that I, I read back then, right? But that's not to say – so I've really kind of only focused on maybe um, ethnicity, nationality, gender. But what's been really cool about this conversation is, is it's reminding me of like entire periods of history, mm. <laughs> right? Yeah. That people – dismiss um and even just thinking about christian tradition in these you know pre-enlightenment it's something i'm like man i want to learn more about that i really (laughs) do and i think that's encouraging i i think i want to come out of this just wanting to learn more and i'm really i'm really struck by the things that drove c.s lewis towards god towards the spirit Mm -hmm. um and george mcdonald too and you're one of the people i look to uh you know you don't think i'm weird when i think when I say the Holy Spirit is pretty weird, you you agree with me on that, right? In my view, you know, God is actually showing up when something strange has happened. There we go. There we go. Um, and I just, <laughs> I want to lean more into a kind of faith that is okay with the weirdness. Um, yeah. yeah. So yeah, and I, I love, I, I love what you said about sort of being a good a good time traveler intellectually. Lewis, of course, is really famous for his phrase chronological snobbery, which the which is the idea that because something is newer, it's de facto better. Mm. And I've been very compelled by that. Um, traditional cultures and folk cultures around the world, of which many medieval cultures would be included, for all the problematic things that we can find, sure, deconstruct whatever you need to deconstruct about it. But these were people who were brilliant. These were not foolish people. These were not um, disconnected people from the human experience. They lived like we do in many ways. They loved like we do, laughed like we do. Um, They were human beings. And the views that they had as part of, in many ways, more intact human cultures than our own living far more closely to ecological realities, far more closely to spiritual realities than we are used to in what I personally view as a very decadent 
an out of rhythm age, an age that's lost the beat, uh, we can learn so much from. And it's not about a fetishization of the past. It's about mining the deep resources that our foremothers and our forefathers left for us in the form of what they knew would be passed down. And this is intentional. Stories stay. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. They wrote essays in the medieval period. They're all gone. But the stories are there, right? And so that's what's so fascinating to me about this use of images, because you can take a story and you can say, once upon a time, there was a prince who lived in a big castle on the edge of a wood. And in that wood, there was a lake. And at the bottom of the lake, there was a man who slept covered with hair. And all of a sudden, you're drawn in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that story, Iron John, right, was was... Who knows where that began? It was first recorded in Germany, but it's hundreds, if not thousands of years old. And it's about the initiation process of a young man into culture and into his life. And so we need to embrace that concept of image and story um, as much as we can, being aware and careful of the ways that, um, that we're prompted to disengage from our experience or disengage from the experiences of others, especially historically oppressed or persecuted people, groups, or minorities. But the treasures there are real, and I think they're awfully beautiful. Yeah. Oh, Paul, thank you so much for chatting with me about this. Um, and yeah, I think... <laughs> I think people will recognize that you are someone who is a scholar, who um, also has this amazing uh, spiritual imagination. And so I highly recommend his book, um, The Face of the Deep. Hmm. And I I think it's really exciting that it's actually being republished. I, I endorsed I it way back when, right? You did. Yes. Did. You'll, be getting, you'll be getting a new copy of the, the fresh one soon. So that's exciting. Where can people find you and your books and everything on the internet? Yeah. Well, I am spastically uh, active on Twitter. By that, I just mean occasionally will be there and then I'll just be gone. I don't know. My relationship yeah, George, with social media is weird. George McDonald would have a very weird relationship with Twitter as well. Yeah, don't you think? Thank you. Yes. I, I, that's what I tell myself. Yes. Uh, but you can find me at <laughs> At Paul J. Pastor, www.pauljpastor.com is my website. Um, honestly, if you want to get to know me, write me a letter. I have a snail mail address on my website, and I will write you back. Uh, and that's how I generally prefer to communicate. You're welcome to email. Uh, welcome to reach out that way on Twitter. Uh, do watch for um, kind of more of my own poetry and fiction work. It will be coming out over the coming years. Um, I've been working for years on several projects I'm very proud of that I would hope are in the tradition of a McDonald um, in that sense of working with images to mm-hmm. to just intuitively explore kind of from the gut, like not from the head or the heart, but from the gut, these deep truths of Christianity. Um, so watch for those, but no guarantee of when you'll see them. Okay, but we can look out for it. Okay, well, thank you so much, Paul. Thank you. It's been so good to talk.
This has been an episode of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. Find out more at propheticimaginationstation.com. Also, you can follow Danielle and Crispin on Twitter and Instagram, as well as following the Prophetic Imagination Station on Twitter at PIS underscore imagine and on Instagram at Prophetic Imagination Station. Thanks for listening.